We have um, some special guests with us today. We have the group from Ground 40 that are with us today. Um, how many have heard of Ground 40? Oh, good, five. That's fantastic. What in the world? That's terrible. I know more probably have. Ground 40 is, we'll hear a little bit more about them in a minute, but they are, they're based out of Monroe. They do a really good job um, just teaching men how to be men and seeing people transition out of being delivered from addiction, whatever, and back into what God's called them to be. And I could talk all day long about it, but it wouldn't mean as much as if we had somebody that we actually know from the church who's a part of Ground 40. And I was at his graduation Friday night. He just graduated um, from four months at, at Ground 40. And y'all y'all know the Parra family. Y'all know Chris Parra. So he's going to come up here, and we're going to like this little impromptu interview. It's going to be fantastic, right? So y'all need to give a huge gathering welcome to Chris Parra. So funny. last service, man, I'm up here sweating. It's like, who's asking the questions and who's answering the questions? He's like just super cool, and I'm up here like, I'm dying here. It's because that light, that light, just awful. Anyway, so I'm going to, I'm just going to ask Chris some random questions that I may or may not have been given ahead of time. These are spontaneous questions. I'm sure of it. <laughs> First one's First one's pretty, pretty simple because you get to share some of your story with us, and we love that. So just kind of share with us what, what happened in your life that ultimately led you to Ground 40. Um, for me, um, I was addicted to drugs for probably roughly 15 years. I started out young. I was about 15, 16 years old, just dabbling in alcohol and, you know, smaller drugs, and it led to different things. Uh, snow, had a big snowball effect in my life, and... Uh, Eventually, I went to pain pills. Pain pills weren't enough. Heroin and meth took over my life. Um, in and out of jail, um, just living reckless and crazy and wild, man. Just didn't have a care in the world. I thought I didn't, but, you know, I had great parents, great family, great support. But I didn't care, you know. It was just all I cared about was getting high and chasing that dope and just living a wild life. And um, a few months back, I got in more trouble. Um, was actually locked up for a couple months and you know, just hating life, hating myself, blaming everybody but, but myself, you know, because I'm the one that did it to myself, you know. But uh, just didn't, didn't know where to turn, um, just totally lost, man, just miserable, miserable myself. And sitting in jail one day, we had you know, guys that come in from, I think it was First Assembly and Albemarle that come in and talk to us and preach and, and share the gospel. And I know that there was a certain something that was said that, you know, just something inside me is like, man, you need to get, get right with God again because this might be it. This might be your last go at this. And, you know, it scared me to death. And me and my cellmate both, we went out there, mm-hmm. rededicated my life to the Lord. And that's when things finally started to turn around just a little bit for me. There was a little bit of hope in my life. Again, I saw it. And, you know, just my parents were in touch with uh, Wes at Ground 40, and they heard about the program. At first, I was like, heck no, I'm not, I'm not doing this. I've been to rehab before. I just can't, I just can't do it. You know, just, it's not in me again. I just don't think I could do it. But I don't know. As time went on that first month, like I said, I was in denial, just blaming everybody. Then I kept reading my Bible. Mom kept sending me scriptures and just encouragement. And a lot of people from the community did the same thing. And finally, just something just snapped in my mind. I'm like, you know, maybe I need to give this a shot. Maybe there's something more to it. And that's when I talked to him. I said, yeah, I'd like to check out Ground 40, just see what it's about, and just kind of go from there. And that's when I was able to get out, went to the farm, and, man, it's just been, it's been awesome ever since. I mean, God has really done a lot of work in my life. And I got a long ways to go. I still have my struggles and stuff. But, I mean, to see where I was and where I've come from, it's just, like, totally different, man. It's just awesome. It's a great feeling. I'm glad to be here. It is like night and day. I mean, how many of you have known Chris and you can see that, right? It's like night, and like you're actually good looking now. It's fantastic. Easy. <laughs> and bigger than me, so I should be easy, right? Um, so I'm going to ask you to kind of describe 
what Ground 40 is, but I want to make sure something really stood out to me. You said the word snowball, and some of us here, um, maybe some teens, students, I just kept hearing you say, like, it kind of started small, and then it just before long it was, like, huge. And I think sometimes we, we miss that, you know, like the power of the choice that we're making today, and it can end up being, like, something we never planned on. Anyway, because nobody wakes up. Y'all know nobody wakes up in the morning and goes, today I hope to go to jail. At least I hope if you're here and that's your prayer, leave. No, I'm kidding. No, don't leave. Uh, but, you know, it's just that, it's that cumulative effect. So, so you're, you end up at Ground 40, and we've kind of heard of it, and it's kind of new in the area. So what, how would you describe Ground 40? What is it? Well, it's a country farm. Nah, it's, uh, it's a good spot. Um, we have chickens. We have hogs. We have um, all types of animals. But it's a, uh, it's a place of refuge for a lot of guys. I mean, that are broken and coming out of jail or off the streets and just have nowhere to turn. Uh, it's a 120-day program, um, four months. And uh, it's a discipleship program. It's not just a rehab. I mean, you hear that a lot of times, rehab, whatever. But this is something totally, totally different. I mean, you actually learn about the Lord. You learn about different things in the Bible, and they actually help you apply this stuff to your life and try to walk it out with you. And it's, uh, it's, a, man, it's, a, great, it's a great place. If you've never been or never heard of us, you know, check it out. It's, it's amazing. And uh, I mean, it's, it's done a lot for me and a lot for the guys that are here, too, as well. It's just God's there on the property, that's for sure. And for so long... I've been a taker, you know, my whole entire life, taking from people, taking everything. But it teaches you how to give back and be a giver. That's, yeah. that's something that's big. Yeah. I've been there. It is an awesome place. Um, so wh what would you say that Ground 40, besides the obvious, like, okay, here you are sitting here, and you were in jail a while back. So the obvious what it's done, but how would you say it's changed your life? Well, it's given me hope and peace again. That, you know, there is... There's a second, third chance God gives you, but, you know, you can't abuse that chance. You've got to actually want it and actually, you know, apply it to your life. And, you know, it's just it's an amazing thing. Like I say, it's like a refuge that we, the guys can go back to. And it's like a safe haven almost. But, you know, they help you transition back into the community, help you get a job, and just step by step. It's a slow process because this stuff doesn't happen overnight. It's, 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 it's just amazing, man. It's just awesome. I can't speak enough highly about it. But I know it's not Ground 40, it's not Wes, it's not Cody, it's the Lord. Yeah. He's working through that. Sure. It's awesome. Sure. Isn't that great? Isn't that a great testimony? Man. So we, we want to pray for Chris. Um, and I just want to say, I did this first service, but Nehemiah and Renee, just we love you guys. So there are parents behind this story that never quit praying, never gave up. Um, some we have some other parents here in, in the house that are in that similar situation and so what I'm praying that you see through this testimony is that Jesus is still transforming lives he's we sometimes in church think there's a magic button right if I just pray hard enough then poof it'll be fixed but it's a process it's a journey and you've been walking it and y'all been believing it and so we just want to pray uh, I'm going to pray over you guys if there are parents in the room while I'm praying for them, would you just like say to God, I guess this is legal. I don't know. Can you just like say to God, um, I want that prayer too, right? I need that for my life because he sees your children just like he sees Nehemiah and Renee's son, right? And I love that you shared this with us. You are in a place where God's transforming lives, and we're so thankful for that. So if you're near Nehemiah and Renee, just raise y'all's hands. They're right there. Um, just put your hands on their shoulders. We're going to pray over them. And um, Father, right now in your name, Jesus. What an honor it is to, to see and hear the story. You are still changing lives, yeah. God. Man, people just think that the gospel was a long time ago and it's all about something that happened thousands of years ago. That's ridiculous. You're a living God and the word is alive, which means we should always hear stories about dead things coming back to life. And that's what we've heard this morning. And Chris, I thank you that he um, has completed four months God, on the farm, I thank you for this, this step in the journey, but we recognize that you're still working in him, God. There are still dreams that we're believing for. There are still people that you want him to talk to. There are things for him to do. And so we thank you, God, that you've brought him to this place. I think of the word Ebenezer. Thus far, the Lord has brought me, and you'll continue to do that. I thank you for Nehemiah and Renee, just for parents who believed 
God, um, Abraham in Romans, it says that he saw that he was old and as good as dead. And yet, in spite of that, he believed. And that's what parents have done, God. They have seen the worst and believed you to do the best. And I thank you that we get to see the testimony that what the enemy meant for evil, you have turned for good. And so for every parent in this room, Lord, who, who right now in their soul is begging that their son or their daughter could sit on this platform and give a same testimony, I pray you'd fill them with hope that you are no respecter of persons and that you are working in their child's life as well and you're bringing things back to you. We call to the north, the south, and the east, and the west, give up your young and return our children to the Lord. We thank you for it, God. In your name, Jesus, amen. Can you just give the Lord a big shout of praise? And this is Woody. Everybody say, hey, Woody. Woody's going to share a little bit, sing a song, and then when he's done, Wes is going to come, and he's just going to share the word and some of his testimony. You're going to love it. Turn to the person next to you and say, this is going to be so good. You're going to love it. Everybody say hey to Woody one more time. Hi, folks. It's good to see everybody this morning. How many of you can say God's been good to me? Amen. He's been so good to me, y'all. I find myself in the second week at the farm. Uh, and uh, they got me up here singing already, and that's okay by me. Um, I came to the farm because uh, I, uh, I got my, my eyes off what mattered, and, uh, and I started uh, falling into some sin that was uh, going to potentially destroy me. And so I cried out to God, and I asked him to help me. And it uh, uh, started with my wife. She cried out first. We're friends with Wes. Wes is going to be speaking in a moment. But she called Wes and said, you need to try to help my husband. And, you know, he, I live in Lancaster. He got there within about an hour. And uh, he said, man, you need a sabbatical is what you need. Come to the farm. I'm a worship pastor. I'm a businessman. And uh, I'm a follower of Christ. But how many of you know that you can be born again and still be in bondage? Huh? People don't like to hear that, do they? People don't want to hear that, but it's true. It's true. You can be born again and you can still be in bondage. And God, that's not God's will for our life. I want to share something with you real quick. You know, Pastor asked what, us to ask the Lord what we need from him, and I'll tell you what I prayed. Uh, I asked him to empower me to give him what he needs from me. That's what I asked him. You know, I stopped. Uh, we sang the song, We Love You, and We'll Never Stop. Well, I want to tell you, I stopped. How do I know I stopped? Because he said, if you love me, keep my commandments. That's right. And that means that we're to love him with everything within us. You know, Jesus said radical things like, no, don't go bury your dad. Follow me. No, don't go say goodbye to your family. Follow me. He calls us to radical faith. And I stopped. So I, I could more aptly sing, you love me, you'll never stop. Because he has never let me go. And I'm here to tell you, whatever state you're in, whether you're a believer or not, God has a plan for your life. He loves you. He wants the absolute best for you. And I know I'm preaching to the choir because this is one loving church. I know y'all love the Lord. I can watch your worship, and I can tell that you guys love Christ. It's such a pleasure to be here. But I just wanted to share that with you. The Lord's called me to uh, walk away from my business. I own a multimillion-dollar business. Uh, he said, you know, you've been... Uh, you've been I thought it was my thing to make money for Christ, and that's how I justified spending most of my time trying to make money, because I was able to give and help, and, but he said, I want all of you, and so he's called me to step away and to trust him with my business, with my employees running it, and to come to the farm, and I'm so, so grateful for Wes, and I'm so grateful for Ground 40. It's changing my life, and I'm finally stepping in to what he called me to do. I wrote this song, it's called, it's called uh, Because He Loves Me, Because You Love Me. I wrote it sitting at my kitchen table. I was, thinking about, uh, I was thinking about all the mistakes I made when I wrote it. I 
oh Lord. You have spread your wings over me. My King, you have always been there for me. That is why when I think of all I've done, I ask why. Why would you want someone like me? Because you love me. I have fallen more times than I can count. But each time you have picked me up off the ground. That is why when I think of all I've done, I could cry. Why would you want someone like me? Because you love me. Your glory covers the entire earth. You hold the future in your hands. Why would you place on me such precious words when I am just a sinful man? Because you love me. Because you love me. Thank you, Lord. Ooh, because you love me. Oh, yes, you do. Oh, because you love me. Y'all put your hands together for the Lord. He's good. Wow, there you go, Woody. Y'all give it up for Woody one more time. Man. The worship here has been incredible this morning. We've worshiped in song. Now we're worshiping the reading of God's Word, and His Word ignites us in worship. A little disclaimer before we go any further. I have a wedding that I'm speaking at today with one of my guys who is getting married, who went through the program, who graduated the program, and God just, man, He just really did a number on this kid's life. His, brought their relationship back together. He's been arrested for uh, breaking and entering into pharmaceuticals, been shot at, been shot, and God has now brought him and his fiance back together, and I love those guys so much. I love you guys. I mean, it's been a good morning this morning. Uh, feel very welcomed here, but I don't love you like Jesus loves you, and I don't love you like I love my guys. <laughs> so, so when I get finished, I'm going to I'm going to take off out the side, and it's no disrespect. I just, man, this is incredible worship. The first service was great. Uh, response was very well to us uh, for addicts. People say that they love us. Christians say that they love us, but when they hug us, you know it's not true. When they say we're welcome to come in and they still are kind of standoffish, we can tell. So the scripture that I want to go to today is in 1 Corinthians uh, first service I did 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 13, and in the context of this, Paul is talking to a church that are enamored in the gifts of God. They're more concerned with the gifts of God than God himself. The reason why God saved us, the reason what church is supposed to be about, what everything is supposed to mean. We're in a, a generation now where we're more concerned about what we can do instead of what God can do. 
these gifts that he's given us, he's given us all different gifts, that's what he talks about, are for the glorification of God, not to lift ourselves up. They are to help one another, discernment, the gift of preaching and teaching. They're to edify the body of believers, not oneself. And I believe we've missed it somewhere along the way. He's given us the resources, the power of the Holy Spirit, to go in and completely transform people's life by speaking life and truth into them in the name of Jesus. And I believe we've missed it somewhere along the way. So we'll go to verse 8, chapter 13. Love never fails. Mm. But where there are prophecy, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, make sure you understand that, we only know in part. We don't know everything, so we prophesy in part. But when perfection comes, praise God, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked as a child, I thought as a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish things away. Now we see, but in a poor reflection, as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. I know in part, then I shall fully know, even as I am fully known. And now these three things remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Amen. I grew up in a church. I'm going to share a little bit about my testimony, a little bit about what Ground 40 is, but I believe I want to bring a little bit of word to you. Uh, I grew up in a church that preached love. My father was an alcoholic. My mother did her best to hide his alcoholism. We didn't talk about these kind of problems in church. I remember even as a five-year-old, I have a five-year-old now, and I'm like, man, I, I remember being his age. But I remember riding to church, and there were certain things that were said in the car that you better not say in the church about what went on behind closed doors. Violence, domestic violence, the alcohol. Everything that was going on inside our house stayed inside of our house because they knew well enough not to bring our problems to the church, which is where our problems should be brought to. I grew up under pastors who would say, we love you, we love you, we love you. But when my mother and father divorced when I was about five years old, there was no one there from the church to counsel us. They taught us about faith and hope. I had no hope because I had no faith, because I'd known no love. You understand what I'm saying? As a child, I was formatted into this belief system. The church is for only for good people who's got it right, who've gotten it right. Man, I, to see Woody stand up here and share a little bit of his testimony that he is an ordained pastor who still doesn't have it all together, who still needs Jesus just as much as he did when he was 13 as when he's almost 60. I love you, Woody. <laughs> but to say that, how many pastors would say, I still need Jesus? I still need the Holy Spirit to lead God, direct me, convict me, direct me, break me sometimes from my own selfishness. How many Christians can say that? And then we look at the unbelieving world and we judge them on a whole other level, but we will not hold our brothers and sisters in Christ accountable. There is no such thing anymore as church discipline. We go out and yell at a world full of unbelievers who don't have the power of the Holy Spirit leading, guiding, and directing them, and we tell them how to live. But we will not say it to the church. Jesus said, if you have a sin, if your hand causes you to sin, to cut it and throw it. Right? We cut it. And hold on to it for later. We don't help our brothers and sisters to grow in this grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ and repentance, full repentance, which is the, the turning of away from. It's not very popular in the church now, speaking that, that God wants you to change. He requires change. That's what repentance is. It's not very popular. So growing up in a church that they didn't talk about change because they didn't talk about problems. When my mother and father divorced, there was nobody there to counsel us. There was nobody there to mentor us, disciple us, walk us through this. I began to take all this guilt and shame of what was my father's. He just spoke about it just a minute ago. If you've got guilt and shame on you, 
I'm praying that God gives a word for you right now. I had all this guilt and shame that didn't even belong to me. That I was heaping on myself, that the enemy was throwing at me. That would manipulate my thought process of who I was when I turned 10 years old. The father that I only got to see every other weekend, and usually in a drunken stupor, I would now be uh, taken completely away from without supervised visitations. Because at 10 years old, I was sat on my uncle's couch as a child and told he would be registered as a sex offender. He was my father. I didn't care that he was an alcoholic. I didn't care that he was a deadbeat, didn't pay my mom any child support because he was my father. And there were things that were going on in my life at the time that I did feel safe at my father's house. And then I was yanked out of my father's house. I would go there on supervised visitation as a 10-year-old, and I would love to tell you that godly men from the church would come there and sit for this visitation and counsel me and my father and my brother as this went on, but there was no church there beside of us. The church that had preached love into our lives was not there to show that love. As I would get older, I would become more and more angry, filled with guilt and shame of my father's charges, of his addiction, of the life that I had lived, wearing my brother's hand-me-downs because my mom was trying to do it by herself, trying to figure out why all the neighbors had all these things that I couldn't have, didn't have, wouldn't have, and I could not find any kind of consolement in anything but drugs. At 13 years old, I began smoking marijuana and became so unruly my mom could not handle me anymore, so she kicked me out, and where do I go to live at? My father's house. Man, that really skewed my view on love. Either they don't care about my safety or they don't believe that he did what the charges were. Either way, I felt lied to or neglected. From 13 to 16, I found crack cocaine. 16-year-old kid, high school, dropped out, crack cocaine. I'm not boasting in my past. But that was the only thing that would comfort me because the body of believers was not there. I should convict us deep. I would go in and out of jail, in and out of rehabs, in and out of prison, in and out of meetings. And the only thing that was constant in my life was my addiction. Not my friends, not my family, not my church, not anything in the community, but my addiction. It was my comforter. I worshipped it. I worshipped it. I had this disorder where it was the most important thing in my life because it was the only thing in my life that I felt loved me. Had three kids by the time I was 23 years old. Uh, my middle son's floating around here somewhere. My oldest son just left to go to the wedding to get ready. And I completely walked out on them before my oldest was five. Nobody stood in my way. No one confronted me and, this is, and said, this is not how it's supposed to look because it's what's accustomed to the community that we live in now. Fathers walk out and nobody cares. Nobody says a word. Court system's full of men who are so far behind on their child support, they'll never catch up. And nobody says anything. Moms are trying to be self-sufficient, but they're having to lean on the government. And the separation between state and church has become more and more evident. Because instead of going to the church now for help, they know who to go to. The only one who will respond the state and this is our fault Christians this is our fault by the time I was 26 years old I found my father dead due to a self-induced heart attack from benzodiapans and alcohol I had divorced my first wife and the Christian pastor that married us without counseling us didn't come to try to counsel me out of it didn't try to stop me nothing it was okay it was accepted Met my second wife, who must have been completely crazy before she met me, <laughs> because she'd never done drugs and ended up living the lifestyle that I did, sober-minded. But, I mean, I am a catch. I wish she was... <laughs> I, <laughs> I, 
I just got out of jail. I went to go, yeah, I went to go sing karaoke and find me a woman. And that's what I did. <laughs> I was very vague on my past and what I had just left, because I had just left uh, Union County Hideaway, call it a hotel. I've been there 82 times. I checked out and was going to go find me a place to stay. I went to the local bar and was singing karaoke, trying to show out. And this woman can sing. Went up there and shot some game at her. <laughs> and it stuck. <laughs> she didn't know the Lord. I didn't know the Lord. It wasn't long before we were living together. And I pulled her into my lifestyle. Not into my addiction, but into my lifestyle. And without Jesus, she had no hope. Our life spiraled out of control. We... We're stealing power from a lawyer's office that was close to the house and got away with it for a few days. But if you uh, could tell I've been arrested 82 times is what I said. I'm not really good at getting away with stuff. <laughs> they were trying to hit me with a career criminal charge. And I said, you think I should do this for a career? I'm not any good at it. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> everybody knew who I was and what I was doing. And I'd get pulled over, and they'd put handcuffs on me before they'd even search the vehicle. And I'm like, this is crazy. I would start seeking every path to get clear of this addiction. From AA to NA to whatever step, to this step, to that step, to programs, to facilities, to anything else. But God, I would not try. I would try anything else. I'll use it in a different term, but God. Because I hated Christians and they had caused me to hate him. They had misrepresented the Lord of lords and the King of hosts in such a way that my unbelief became anger and hatred. Got arrested in 2014 uh, on one of my longest stints on methamphetamines and heroin IV use. It was about uh, 14 days. I was up, strung out, messed up, driving from Columbia or Wilmington to Charlotte to meet my guy. And a lot of people would say, why would you drive from Wilmington when that's a lot of stuff down there? Because my guy would front me stuff. I was trapped in this weird place. You don't get fronted the kind of stuff I was doing because you're more than likely going to die before you can pay for it. But he would front it to me. I'd drive down here, get it, drive back, totaled the vehicle somewhere along the way back in Poketon, drove a totaled vehicle to Charlotte, got my stuff, and attempted to drive back to Wilmington with flat tires, busted windows, headlights hanging out, mirrors hanging down. But I don't know if you know anything about Union County, but they don't really care for people driving totaled vehicles down the road. <laughs> and it, they let me know by sending 14 of their finest out there to confirm this with me. <laughs> they got me out of the vehicle, and I was tired of running. I was tired of this life, and I just wanted it to end, and I didn't care how. They asked me what I had in the vehicle. Instead of fighting with them, I just gave it to them. They put me in the back of the police car, and they took me to Union County Jail for the 82nd time. And I began to detox like I had done every other time. Six days, seven days, I'd be back on my feet. I'd get my neck back, which means I'd put some weight on, because when I went in there, I was about 123 pounds. I'm about 215 right now of ruggedness. So <laughs> if you could tell, I was almost half the guy that I am right now. Inebriated, skinny as all get out. I started detox like every other time before. And by the seventh day this time, something was happening differently. I wasn't getting better. I was getting worse. I couldn't eat to push this stuff out of my body. The toxins were soaking into my liver and all my other organs, and they were causing me to shut down. Eighth day, ninth day, I'd lost 11 pounds. They had specialists come in there to resuscitate me, to get my weight back up. Officers were having to shower me. Tenth day, eleventh day, I woke up to officers praying over me that my family would accept what was fixing to happen. I was going to die in that jail. And what do I do? I cuss out the officers for praying over me because I don't like the God that they serve. You would think that this would be the time that God would intervene and I would tell you this great light came and Jesus filled up the room, but this is not what happened to me. I got better. They asked me what I wanted to eat. I told them I wanted some Bojangles. They brung me Bojangles. As I was drinking my Bojangles tea, it hit me that this is my last meal and this is what I asked for. 
<laughs> hey, idiot. <laughs> they, they start giving me two or three trays. I'm eating all these trays. I stand up on my own. I'm getting some weight up. And they stop giving me two or three trays. <laughs> like, okay, you've showed us a trick. So I get well. They put me in segregation. They take me from segregation, put me in a block with a guy named Edward. He's about six foot five, black gentleman who loved Jesus. And I'm in the room with him. And I'm like, here we go. It's a religious nut, <laughs> fanatic in here. And I remember jumping on my bed the first day and I don't think he could read because he would flip through his. Let me. Is this on? Get this one. This is what I'd hear. That's, that's, that's all I'd hear. This guy's down there just ruffling his papers. It's like he can't even read, and he's down there with his Bible. So I jumped down, I grabbed some toilet paper, and I shoved it in my ears, and I laid back down. And I'm like, I'm just going to get some rest, and I'll ask to get moved in a few days. And it's like the noise got louder from this guy's Bible. <laughs> so I jumped down I was like hey bud you don't talk to me about your religion and I won't debate you against your religion and he kind of kept peace with me for a few days get out go see guys go in the room he'd pray over them what have you and I'm thinking this guy's going to try to convert this whole block I got to find a way out of here so we go in there and talk one day and I'm like Ed you really think God loves you don't you and he's like oh I know he does I said, the God of all creation, who's allowed you to get locked up in jail, loves you so much. I said, if he loves you, then why are you here? And he said, because my God is just, and my God is fair. And I crossed the line, and he reprimanded me. I was like, that's probably the best thing I've ever heard in my life from somebody. <laughs> I've been locked up with a lot of people who had jailhouse religion, and this was different. He said, you know what you need? You need to go to the life skills program in this jail to get your life back on track. I said, okay, what is it? He said, it's an open pod, and they got pizza and movies. I was like, this is, and they have it in the jail. I thought he was pulling my leg. I'm like, they have it in the jail? He's like, yeah, they have it in the jail. So he signed me up. He gave the letter to the guard. The guard came and took it, and as soon as the door shut, I'm thinking, this guy just set me up. I'm going somewhere crazy in this jail <laughs> probably to check off or PC, which is protective custody, and I'm going to sit in a room by myself because I'm aggravating him. They come get me the next day, take me across the jail. I think I'm going home. Somebody's paid my $100 bond. $100 bond. I was stuck in jail on a $100 bond. I must have really made a lot of people mad. Like, <laughs> you can make payments on a $100 bond. <laughs> and I couldn't get out. I'm like, got all my stuff. I think somebody's bonding me out. And we start walking. And I know the jail better than the officers. And I'm like, you're going the wrong way, bud. The exit's back there. He's like, you're not going home. You're going to life skills. And I was like, this is a real place? And he was like, yeah. I said, open room, pizza and movies? He's like, sure is, bud. We get to this big steel door. And I hear all these men in there laughing. And I'm like, in my mind, envisioning these guys watching a movie shoving pizza in their face playing checkers and connect four or whatever and he opens the door up and the, they're his checkers but they're still in the box and the tv's cut off and i scan the room and don't smell any pizza and everybody's laughing and hollering and there's this 18 year old kid in the middle of the floor with his bible open and i'm like are you kidding me i look at the officer i'm like this is not where i want to be and he said you could tell the next shift because the shift change and he shuts the door on me <laughs> I'm like, this is insane. I hang out there. This is a Thursday. I hang out there Thursday, Friday, Saturday, debating with these guys, letting them know that they're still locked up in jail, that they're still going to be losers when they get out of jail just because they pretend to love Jesus while they're here. I told them as soon as the chaplain comes on Monday, I'm going back to a regular block. I don't care if I have to go to the hole because I'm sick of hearing how happy they are to be locked up. Because you're locked up in Union County. And I don't care what anybody says. It's not as nice as the brochure seems. There's, <laughs> the food is not as good as it looks on the menu. And the brochure of the swimming pool that I couldn't find really upset me. <laughs> I'll go back to jail, please. I like, 
So Monday morning rolls around, this chaplain walks in there, he's about six foot four, and I'm still trying to get my weight back. I'm really mouthy, arrogant little kid, and I run up to him, I'm like, sir, <laughs> I just want to go back to a regular block. I don't, I don't know why you're teaching, he's a big guy, I'm like, I don't know why you're teaching these guys this garbage for, but I just really want to go back to a regular block, and he sits me down over there on a stool, and he proceeds to tell me the gospel of Jesus Christ differently than I'd ever heard in my life. One from a passion of love for me. He wanted me to know it because he wanted me to be set free. He wanted me to hear it because he wanted me to hear of the God who could save my life. And he did that day, that moment in time. At 10.15 in the morning, God penetrated my life. And he forgave my soul. But then the realization that I'm still an addict hit me, and I began to panic. Now that I know this Jesus, I'm going to die in my addiction. My kids are never going to know a good father. My mother will never know a good son. All these things bombarded me, and I'm in the jail, and I'm praying, and I'm crying, and I'm seeking God's face, and I'm devouring his word, looking for an answer somewhere. And I found David. And me and him just, man, so much the same. God had preserved me my whole life, and every instance he reminded me of in that jail, that how he protected me from death, from some kind of blood disease, hepatitis, all these things. I IV'd heroin for more than 10 years, and he protected me from every overdose he protected me. He covered me. Just like David, Jesus would, God would pull him out of this pit and he'd put himself right back there. And God would protect him and he'd put himself right back there. And then I found Psalm 40. I said, I waited patiently for the Lord. So in that jail, I began to wait patiently for God. I said, he heard my cry. The God of all creation, who's able to keep the earth spinning in such a way that that winter and fall still come in the same time, that the sun and the moon still rise at the same time. This God who could control all this stopped what he was doing in his tracks and heard my cry. And he pulled me out of this mud and this mire. And he put me on a solid rock, on the back of Jesus Christ, because I could no longer walk by myself. Amen. <laughs> Praise God. I didn't know what to do next. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to my God, and I began to shout in that jail like those other nuts that I had watched. When ministers would come in, they would get ministered to because when you see a drug addict or an ex-convict who has been set free, they know they have been set free. They know what God has done in their life. And I just wanted to be around it more and more and more. I wanted to see people's lives changed. I get out of jail, and God didn't fix anything on the outside. <laughs> I prayed to you in there, and I waited patiently on you in there, and I ended up at the Union County Shelter, homeless with nothing. But I was content because I had something that I had never had before, this personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And he set the path in motion for people to ask me to share my testimony and go stand on platforms and tell what God has done in my life. And more and more men would call me and say, I want the same thing you've got. I said, well, I can teach you to the same person that I went to. It's Jesus. It'll always be Jesus. It'll never stop being Jesus. It's not medication. It's not programs. And it's not a step procedure. It's only God who can set you free. It's only God who can do these things in your life. These guys come to the farm now. We're a 120-day program, and we're free. He did all this stuff for me while I was a ward of the state. He saved my soul. He set me free. He filled me up. He over and over and over gives me revelations after revelations of a new life for free. He's paid the price, the ultimate price. How can I charge these guys for what I have, what he has given me? So these guys come to the farm for 120 days for free because they have bankrupted their families. They have stolen, 
taken and they are out of everything. Most of them that I was trying to get into would tell me it was $20,000, $15,000, $10,000, dollars for 28 days. And they couldn't offer me any guarantees or any promises that they could give me the right answer. All they could do was give me a bunch of tips. Let me tell you what the Word doesn't do. It doesn't give you tips. It gives you one answer, and it's the only answer. You must die to self. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's what Luke says. Jesus' first words on the scene, boom, you got to change. I love you so much, just like you are, but I love you too much to leave you that way. you got to change, and you got to follow me. I'll help you. I'll guide you. I'll teach you. I'll motivate you. I'll move you. I'll put my spirit inside of you and give you a mind like Christ so you can understand what I'm talking about. What kind of God does that? Your ways are higher than my ways. Your thoughts are higher than my thoughts. If you look at it in context, he's talking to unbelievers. God works in mysterious ways. How can a God who is unchanging work in mysterious ways? He's unchanging. He is who he is. He is love. That's what he is. We know what he's doing in our lives and in our family's lives. And we question him. He is looking for glory through his people. He wants to give you a mind like Christ so you're no longer confused about the things that he has done in your life. I was so angry that he allowed me to go through those things, but I see now that they were pushing me into him. He pursued me every step of the way, even into that jail. And then he walked in there and he said, what can I do for you, son? Praise God. Because I had no idea what to do for myself. He sent men into my life who would disciple me and pull me out, and that's what we get to do now at the farm. Those guys come there, and they might have knowledge of Jesus Christ, and they might not. We get to share this saving grace that only He is. And we grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ together. And for the longest time, it's been just me. Now we have Cody Honeycutt, who's our operations director. He's not with us today. And now we have Greg Fail, who's getting married today, who's coming on uh, and Woody's coming on, apparently. <laughs> For free. Because <laughs> we're a 501c3 nonprofit. We get asked to come to churches and say, this is our needs list. This is what we need. We need this. We need money. We need that. We... Come on, guys. We're a 501c3 nonprofit. I don't have like this organized script of what I ask people what we need for. Come on. What I like to do is go ask, what do you need? Do you have family here that could be counseled, discipled, talked to? Because we don't just have the farm. On Wednesday nights and Sunday nights, we have our addiction meetings. where We bring the families in. Because the problem is, a lot of these places, they pluck the person who's got an addiction out of their family. They try to fix them, and then they put them back. What we do is counsel the whole family. We counsel the wives, we counsel the children, we bring them together. Hence, Greg's getting married today with his wife that me and my wife have got to pour into for the last few months. How beautiful is that? That God allowed my wife to go through this so she could be sympathetic and understand what's going on with these women. And for the longest time, we question him, what are you doing to me? Why are you allowing this to happen? If you're real and you're full of love, then you must be an idiot loose behind the wheel. No, my God is sovereign, and my God is in control, and there is nothing wasted with him. So if you're sitting here today, and you feel like you are waiting patiently on God, trust this, he hears you, children. He hears you when you cry for your son or your daughter or your grandchildren or your father or your mother. He is listening because he is faithful even when we're not. He is faithful. Look at Chris Parr. Come on, guys. This is your responsibility. We'll catch him. He'll clean them. Then you got to put them out, guys. He's coming back home. He's going to need a body of believers to come around him. Renee and Nehemiah are too. They're going to need to be counseled on this, right? Encouraged through this. Held accountable in all things. Confronted when we're wrong. Christians, this is what we need to do for one another out of love. Confront one another when we're wrong, in love, 
Instead of just saying it's grace, 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 grace. Because grace runs out. He's died on the cross. What more do you want from him? We want Jesus to do all the dying. What? You got to die to some stuff too. You got to die too. Die to self. That's what it says. That's why I love what we do at the farm. We serve our community. We try to change this selfish heart that we all have, this ademic nature that goes into our blood veins, this selfishness, and we try to make it a servant's heart. So here's how we can help you. We got a bunch of guys who are highly capable at building, fixing, mechanically inclined men who will come out and represent for you because the community needs to feel the presence of the church outside of the walls. A prayer drive-through only works if the person believes the prayer will work. The only people that are going to stop are other Christians. We're doing a prayer walk. Nobody's going to believe you because churches can't even get along with each other. You're on my territory. No, you're on my territory. What in the world are we fighting about? They will know you're my disciples by the way you love one another. What? There's churches exploding everywhere and empty buildings decaying because a family and a family inside the building couldn't get along. Like, seriously. Our guys live in containers and they're happy with it. They're retrofitted. That sounds kind of bad. you got to come to the farm and see it now that I said it. <laughs> they're shipping containers. They're, they're like storage units. But they got like sheetrock and stuff on them, linoleum floors. Air they got air-conditioned guys. <laughs> okay. So they live in these things. And on the way from Monroe to here, I probably passed 30 churches that might have two members at them today. Or four. And we're, we're good stewards of what God has given us. We can't even get along with one another long enough to be good stewards because we've taken stewardship to ownership and we're fighting over who's got the loudest voice in the church and who's got the most power. They, look, they know more about the bylaws than they do the gospel. When the Spirit moves, they shut it down because we like to talk about God and we love to talk about Jesus. But nobody wants to talk about the Spirit even in a Pentecostal environment. I'm just telling you. It's boom, 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 boom. Let me see my notes. Sorry I didn't have any. I get a little long-winded. But guys, I want to thank you. I do have a wedding to get to. <laughs> I love you guys so, so much. But, but, man, God loves you so much more. He loves you so much more that if you're sitting here today and you're struggling with addiction, guilt, shame, depression, anxiety, fear, Whatever you call it, he can pull you out of it. He could put you on a solid rock. And he could put a new song in your heart and a hymn of praise to our God. And then people will see what he's done in your life. Then they'll surrender. Then they'll see that God can still do miracles. So guys, I'm so grateful that you've allowed me to speak here with you this morning. Paul, thank you so much for allowing me to share the platform with you, man. Guys, thank you again.